Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Welcome to the London Christmas Quiz of the Year. My name is Finn Harper. I will be your host tonight. We're recording live in Bureau, part of the design district in snowy, snowy North Greenwich. We'll be looking back at 12 months of shenanigans in London's architecture world, from the spiral tree, designed by Thomas Heatherwick for the late Queen Liz, to the spiral lectern, designed apparently by mistake for Liz Truss. Liz Truss and Queen Liz, very different political figures in some ways, but comparable in others. Both women, both made leaders of our nation despite having never won a general election, both extremely expensive for the country, and both now no longer with us. <laughs> One having passed beyond this mortal plane over to a world of infinite darkness, and the other having joined the Tory backbenches, which is arguably the same thing. I'm delighted to be joined by some remarkable guests, some of London's most compelling commentators on all things politics and architecture, historians, writers, teachers, editors and pundits. They are truly the sharpest minds in the sector. And on my left, Pete and Sonny are also here. So it's good to have you guys. Thank you. Um, I'm kidding, of course. Please welcome to my left, Team Infinite Darkness, Peter Arkley-Bloxham and Sonny Malhotra. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. Peter is a, a photographer and a writer. Uh, his photographs can be found in Open City's best-selling book, London Feeds Itself, illustrating a chapter by the food critic and Instagram sensation Jonathan Nunn about the North Circular Road. Was that a fun photography gig, Pete? It was a dream come true. A dream come true. And with Peter is Sonny Malhotra, a filmmaker, photographer and Twitch star. Um, I spent far too many hours watching Twitch uh, to try and get my head in the zone to get some material for Sunny tonight. I still don't quite get it. For those of you who aren't Twitchers, it's basically a sort of interactive video streaming site in which, as far as I can tell, Sunny plays the indie general knowledge board game Linky with people called Tex and Wabs while chatting, chatting politics, dating and mental health while simultaneously fighting monsters in the third-person action RPG Horizon Forbidden West. It's a bold new format for entertainment media. I, for one, am looking forward to next year when Channel 4 News will be launching their Twitch stream in which Krishnan Guru Murthy will grill the Chancellor on the autumn budget while playing Mario Kart and Pictionary. A big hand for Team Infinite Darkness! <laughs> Challenging them on my right is Team Backbenches with Catherine Slessor MBE and Dr Ruth Lang. 
Kath is the illustrious president of the 20th Century Society and reigning champion of Christmas University Challenge, which he won last year, single-handedly salvaging the architecture industry's reputation after a certain previous RIBA president's appearance in which he answered only one question, which he got wrong. Oh dear. Uh, I think at this juncture we're allowed to say that that person was Alan Jones. <laughs> <laughs> Which will come as no surprise. Joining Kath is the architect Ruth Lang. Ruth is a module leader in critical practice at the RCA, also a module leader in radical practice at the LSA. Next year, there'll be a module leader in theoretical practice at the AA, protracted practice at the TSCA, and impractical practice at the GSPS MPA. A big hand to both teams. I have to say, London has been an enormous pleasure uh, to work on this year. Thank you so much to everyone who donates to Open City to make it possible. The show is now getting around 100,000 downloads a year, making it the largest and indeed only architecture podcast dedicated to breaking news in London. Um, but, you know, 100,000. What? Yeah, imagine that. Ooh. If every, every time someone listened to this show, they put one pound in a bank account, they would still have nowhere near enough money at the end of the year to pay for an architectural education in this country. Um, anyway, on with the show. So teams, I'm going to ask some questions, introducing the big stories of the year. We're looking for the right answers maybe, but also feel free to tell us about the story, the issues, and the people involved. And we'll start with this for both teams. Um, who was caught on video boasting about defunding deprived areas at a garden party in Tunbridge Wells? I'll give you a clue. Uh, they have a family net worth of £730 million, over 90 times the fortune of, of President Joe Biden. I know. It's uh, everyone my ex-wife went to university with at the Courtauld Institute of Arts. <laughs> All of them. Every single one. Take that. <laughs> I think that was, that was um, Rishi Sunak, wasn't it? And that, for me, was... I know we've all got this sort of thickening shield of... Uh, you know, outrage, fatigue. But that to me was the moment where, you know, it was the real, you don't matter. You know, you might see this, you know, on, on Twitter or something, but, you know, I'm actually just addressing these people right here. And it was kind of, it was a very depressing moment for me to see that played out, which makes it really hard for me. I mean, I'm going to vote for him, but it's going to make it really, <laughs> make it really tough. Um, but I'm politically homeless, so I have no choice. <laughs> Well, he said that he was going to change the funding formulas to make sure that the people where he was got the funding they deserved in Tunbridge Wells. But he didn't say how that was being changed. Maybe they deserve less. That's true. Maybe, that, maybe he's on our side. That's true. I went paintballing in Tunbridge Wells. It was rubbish. So they could <laughs> funnel a few quid into making that place a bit better. It's tough in Tunbridge Wells, you know. I'm sure they need the money. Well, it used to have a coal mine and a steelworks, so, you know, now it's fallen on very hard times, the gin and jag set. I know where to go. <laughs> This is, of course, the news that Rishi Sunak, the wealthiest MP in history, has become the richest leader in the Western world after kicking Liz Truss out of number 10 earlier in the year. Uh, the former Chancellor's tax affairs have been under scrutiny, though. The Independent revealed that Sunak's partner has nommed on status, despite residing in Downing Street, potentially letting her off the hook for around £4.4 million in tax. Sky News also reported that Downing Street couple both have US green cards, which come with a legal commitment to make the US your permanent home, which you know might be at odds with the fact that they both obviously live in Britain. Um, but on the subject of money and prime ministers, what did Boris Johnson want to spend £150,000 on until he was stopped 
by police? Was it A, some Lulu little wallpaper, B, a garden party at the height of a national lockdown during an unprecedented airborne global pandemic, C, a designer treehouse at the 16th century manor Chequers Court, or D, an industrial fridge? <laughs> they all sound implausible, but I think we know that it was, it was the treehouse. No, it was E, an undisclosed number of child support payments. <laughs> <laughs> This is indeed the news that Johnson wanted to spaff 150k on a treehouse with bulletproof glass. Um, I feel like a treehouse with bulletproof glass is the sort of thing that appeals to someone who was maybe too much into the Piers Brosnan era of James Bond films and maybe had too many action man toys as a kid. My parents um, tried very hard to make sure that uh, the toys I played with were gender balanced when I was growing up. Um, I kid you not, uh, the first toy I remember them buying from my brother was a breastfeeding Barbie doll who was also a mermaid. <laughs> um, who came out of the blue and then went back in? Duncan. <laughs> oh, that's good. Thanks. I was going to say Neil Young. That's much better. Yeah, I know. Yeah, 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 yeah. I prepared that one. He's earlier. good. Yeah. Yeah. Liz. 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 Liz the terrible a... tross. Yes. Uh, shortest lived prime minister in political history. Uh, a terrible pound shop Thatcher who killed the Queen with a single handshake. <laughs> uh, appointed a former paramour in Quasi to be Chancellor, tanked the economy, and then was ab abruptly defenestrated. Uh, there's an old saying that politics is show business for ugly people, and Liz embodied it to a T. Uh, and people were saying when she was, you know, abruptly defenestrated, what tragedy for her on a human level... Um, and you should feel sorry for her. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you should not. She wanted this more than anything in the world, spent her entire life plotting and planning and scheming and cosplaying for it. So be careful what you wish for. And <laughs> the irony of all this is that as a former prime minister, only for 45 days, was it 45 days around that 45 time? Days. 45 days. She will always be in the group of former prime ministers that nationally significant occasions. So... She'd be lining up at the Cenotaph, for example, between Boris and Rishi for the next 30 years, and eventually people will go, who is that woman again? It's Pork Markets Lady. Yeah, yeah Pork Markets Lady. <laughs> That's what PM stands for. Yeah, so, and she'd just become this, you know, trick question in a pub quiz. Do you so, not... R.I.P. Liz. Do you not think maybe she's a genius? Because she was, she was Lib Dem when she was younger. She was a very active uh, Lib Dem. When Sounds she was like a genius. And, well, well, bear with me, she's like a sleeper agent. <laughs> yeah. she, she comes in, she demolishes faith in conservatives. She, brings, she got an approval rating of minus 55. Absolutely unheard of. Promoted the beige ham from Labour up by 30 points or something. Um, and she was also staunchly anti-royalist. And like you said, she had one meeting with the Queen. I think she's a, I think she's a trained sleeper agent. They never found that Novichok that went missing. Yeah, exactly. I like the bit where you called Keir Starmer the beige ham from Labour. Yeah. And instead of laughing, everyone was just like, mm -hmm. yep. yeah. <laughs> Everyone knew exactly who you make sense. Yes. yes. <laughs> that is the correct title. Yes. I think you guys sound like you're from the Anti-Growth Coalition. <laughs> and I like her. I think she's good. This is, of course, Liz Truss. Um, Liz Truss's spiral lectern turns heads during her ill-fated premiership. It's twisting, tangled shape, perhaps reflecting the trajectory of her time in office. But where did the tradition of a bespoke lectern for each new British Prime Minister come from? This was the pig enjoyer, David Cameron, <laughs> Louis Mem. It's funny that that could, always come that back could to be ham. two different Prime Ministers now. <laughs> you know, the one with the pig thing. 
the pork markets. <laughs> no, it was David Cameron. He started the trend. And apparently, I've been, I've been researching lecterns because, you know, I do my research. And every prime minister, every Tory prime minister has had one. So they don't take the previous incumbent's lecture and they design a new one. Um, and when they when the prime minister leaves, they go into the lectern archive, the lectern graveyard, like statues of Stalin in Russia. What, yeah. what do you think they represent to them? Are they sort of a, a power status thing or are they a sort of a defensive yeah, well they, thing to hide behind? They get to design them. So, so apparently Theresa, t- Cameron's was sort of fluted and like a champagne glass. You all. Uh, Theresa May's was thin and sort of brittle like her. Uh, <laughs> And then there was Boris's one, which was chunky and sort of dark wood, so you could thump it. Uh, and then we had the Jenga. And it reminded me of, you know, when the woman turns her head around in The Exorcist. <laughs> With absolutely horrifying and disgusting in equal measure. And that got sort of... And that's now so toxic that Rishi couldn't use it, so he's using another one. He hasn't got one yet. Oh, is he not? Uh, so because he was, you know, he was, you know appointed in three minutes so he didn't have time to design one any thoughts on what it looked like solid gold yeah so quite he'll, small just he's a sort still of got to design bent one. over yeah <laughs> yeah he's got to design one so if anybody wants to design him a lectern I'm a very tiny one so he looks he looks normal size <laughs> yes. yeah like well, his trusses was literally a downward spiral <laughs> <laughs> and they cost between two thousand and four thousand pounds and they have a steel core in case the wind blows them over at an inopportune moment. This is, of course, the news that the Conservative Party seemed to be on the way out after 13 years of power following a series of scandals and errors that have seen the party go through three prime ministers in less than a year, plunge in the polls and tank the pound to its lowest value in history. Liz Truss broke new records to become the shortest-serving UK prime minister, uh, an, a- an accolade previously held by George Canning, who lasted a dignified 119 days before dying. Canning is, of course, the Canning that the East London neighbourhood of Canning Town is named after, making me wonder which part of London should be rechristened in honour of Liz Truss, who lasted 45 days, as Kath rightly pointed out. What is the most Liz Truss part of London? Is it A, the Canary Wharf branch of Oliver Bonas, B, the Junction 13 M25 travel lodge in Egham, or C, the pipe that water companies use to dump poo in the Thames? Oh, it's got to be a pork market, come on. <laughs> to be. Rename Smithfield. Yeah, rename yes. Smithfield. Liz Trust Market. And then we'll knock it down when the music <laughs> How long will it last, though? 45 <laughs> days, yeah. I think it should be the top of the shard. Because when she went to New York, when she was prime ministerialised, she was at a UN General Assembly and she was photographed uh, on a press conference top of the Empire State Building with New York behind her, you know, like... Top of the world, Ma made it, done all that, you know. A classic, the classic British scene. Yes. The New York skyline. So I think it should be the top of the shard because then, you know, there's nowhere to go but down. <laughs> As an aside, does anyone know how many ministers for housing there have been this year? Anyone in the audience know? I can't count that high. <laughs> this is actually something that makes my life really difficult because when I'm talking about practice, we're always talking about the particular housing ministers that are incumbent and I have to update my slides about every five minutes at the moment. <laughs> That's close enough. There are there were, have been five this year, five ministers for housing, uh, bringing the total number of housing ministers who've served the nation since the Conservatives won power in 2010 to 14. That's an average of more than one housing minister per year more than one housing minister before a year. This is a government that gets through housing ministers faster than they get through lecterns. <laughs> but the no other wonder thing, we're in such a mess. 
The other thing they get through really quickly is titles for this department because they've actually had seven since the Tories got in. So it used to be the housing local government, then it was housing and planning, then it was housing, then it was housing and planning again, then it was housing again, then it was the parliamentary undersecretary for housing. And then it was housing and planning from the 26th of October again this year. So I think the real winners here are lectern designers and people who make those little signs for doors in Downing Street. It's now 10 years on from the London 2012 Olympic Games. The legacy of the Games is uh, still a contested subject for many. Some say it's turned Stratford, where the Olympic Park was, into a neighbourhood of gaudy, bizarre urban follies. So what enormous and novelty-shaped entertainment building grabbed headlines after it controversially won planning permission next to Stratford Station? Um, but I can't remember what it's called. <laughs> Thanks, Pete. Thanks, Pete. Yeah. <laughs> it's a big, I, it's, I, you know, it's a big circular thing with lights on it, right? The big ball. That's what the I'm massive looking ball. for. The massive yeah, ball. Yeah, huge ball. Do you, you forget what sphere was? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So I'm so glad we're on the same team. <laughs> Their team, right? Yes, you're all right. It is the MSG Sphere, uh, a giant performance venue in the shape of a colossal ball. Um, already nicknamed by by some the Bow Bollock. Uh, Sticking with Stratford, which ageing 1970s Scandinavian pop group created a new concert venue in the area this year? I think it was ABBA, Finn. Was it ABBA? It was ABBA, yes! Chip in here and say that, you know, they had the hologram show and this bloke went to see it and didn't realise they were holograms until he was leaving. And so they thought they were doing well for their age. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, they are. So rude, though. They wouldn't sign my autographs. <laughs> this is the news that ABBA, having dominated the airwaves of parties you maybe would rather not be at for more than 50 years, have now reconstituted as virtual avatars for the metaverse era in a 3,000 capacity timber venue so that they can go on haunting us forever. Tediously, because the show is virtual, it's all pre-recorded. It's exactly the same experience every single night, like watching a movie over and over and over again. Who'd have thought that a band who sang a song called Gimme, Gimme, Gimme and another one called I Do, I Do, I Do, I Do, I Do would resort to repetition? (laughs) There were rumours that in keeping with the ecological credentials of that timber frame, uh, that the new venue would be equipped with compost toilets, which don't require flushing. But in the end, ABBA opted for a Waterloo. Um, uh, What small Middle Eastern peninsula state constructed more stadium seats than their entire permanent local population? Yeah, Qatar. It's got to be Qatar. The World Cup. I've been watching that. What's the World Cup? Well, it's where lots of people are murdered (laughs) uh, building stadiums, and we all pretend that that's fine. Sounds sounds terrible. I shan't be watching. Mm. Was the comparison between the seat numbers before? And the population size before or after the construction? (laughs) And is this registered population or does it only count people who have their own passports? Yeah, this is the registered population. This is Qataris. This is definitely one of those examples where we start to realise that the moral ground underneath us has fallen through. Everyone's, you know, pretending that it's absolutely fine that this has happened. And I've burned down one pet shop. And the messages I got, you know, from people afterwards, you'd think, you know, oh, you know, come and talk to us again, come down to the station, and oh, you know, that was my pet shop, you shouldn't have done that. And I'm like, excuse me, how many people died building these stadiums? (laughs) Did Zaha D design the the great badge? Was that his guitar? Yeah, I think it was. 
Yeah, it was one of the ones that um, yeah. she famously washed her hands of any of the human rights issues involved in um, uh, building the stadium. And how does one do that? Shrug helplessly. <laughs> with that, <laughs> with that terrible tap she also designed. Going to also wash your shoes at the same time. Um, this is the news that Qatar has hosted the first ever Winter World Cup featuring an air-conditioned air stadiums for the sweltering crowds. Many have said that FIFA awarding the World Cup hosting to Qatar, where temperatures can regularly climb above 45 degrees, was a bad decision and off-target given the climate emergency. Although perhaps not as off-target as Harry Kane's penalty in the 84th minute of Saturday's quarterfinals against France. That's banging oh. order. <clears throat> um, but uh, from ideological overinvestment abroad to ideological underinvestment at home, what important local buildings are facing closure on an epic scale due to the energy crisis? All of them. Swimming pools. It could have been pubs. It could have been restaurants. It is swimming pools. Um, this is the news that as water and energy companies make record profits, swimming pools, which rely on both water and energy, uh, are closing down, unable to absorb those rising bills. Kath, you're a very keen swimmer. How are we going to keep these pools open? Well, I think, I mean, to get serious, vaguely serious for a moment, the only issue, the only way to do it is to lobby. Uh, Swim England, Swim England, who are the organisation who kind of run swimming programmes for people in this in England, have got a petition going to... Uh, protest against this it's, so it's online so you can sign it and make your make your high dungeon known but um, yeah I mean it is going to be a thing because they consume vast amounts of energy and they're mostly franchised out to uh, I think a company called Better who run them and uh, Better can't cope and are probably trying to try and give them back to local authorities and then local authorities can't run them so they kind of fall in the middle and you know and then they start closing. You know, they start reducing opening hours and then closing altogether. I mean, a lot of them didn't open after COVID, so it's terrible because swimming's great for mental, physical health. Anyone can do it, and it's also a life skill. You know, if you fall into water, you paddle to freedom. Um, so I would encourage people to sign the petition and keep the pool open. Keep we should do open. that. We should also just move all of the swimming pools to Tunbridge Wells, where the fun is. Can anyone tell me how much the Treasury thinks that energy companies will make over the next two years? No? Is it just a lot? Guess, yeah. $200 billion. What? $200 billion British energy companies over the next two years. And that's Partly, just the British ones. That's just the British ones. We're that's such just a the British joke. ones. Why are they making dollars? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, this was uh, an article in Bloomberg, so that's why it's published in dollars. Well, and the rate's fluctuating so much you didn't want to change it in case it was out of date. <laughs> Look, 2022 will be forever remembered as the year the Queen died, but also uh, as a yet another vintage year for architectural carbuncles. Uh, what Marmite tribute did the capital's most Marmite architectural designer create outside Buckingham Palace? The elf on the shelf, uh, Thomas <laughs> Heatherwick created the tree of trees which was basically saplings in pots in a corkscrew a la the lectern so there seems to be a sort of corkscrew theme underpinning terrible things this year and apparently these trees were going to be planted in you know forests up and down the country but it looked like a terrible kind of meta tree that the queen illuminated during the platinum jubilee or the platy jubes as we call it and because she didn't because she was frail, you know, anticipating the Liz Truss handshake, she wasn't actually in Buckingham Palace at the time. She decamped to Windsor. So she sort of had a plunger at Windsor 
and all this sort of light sort of trickled across a courtyard at Windsor and then miraculously trickled up Thomas Heatherwick's Tree of Trees. Uh, and it was a, a low light of a very sort of full-on jubilee weekend, the highlight of which I can uh, pronounce uh, was Duran Duran doing Girls on Film. <laughs> I bet she was They've li- still got it. I bet she was livid when she did the plunder and the tree didn't explode. <laughs> <laughs> it should so have exploded. It's a, yeah. I think it's a perfect sort of metaphor for the royal family. It's just a bunch of normal trees plucked up and then put on a pedestal and illuminated and draped in sort of jewellery and everyone goes, wow, that's amazing. It's not some trees. <laughs> it's some trees and some really unnecessary sort of bits. Bring it down. Well, my mum's from Barbados and we got rid of the Queen. Yeah. Recently. Yeah. Well done. Congratulations. You. Congratulations. Yeah. What are you applauding for? He didn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> no, his mum though. His mum did it. His mum did, yeah, well, did it. Rihanna had something to do with it. She's yeah. now actually a hero of the Republic, I think, as well. Yeah. Wait, your mum or Rihanna? <laughs> I'll check on that one actually. She did die pretty soon afterwards as well. So Yeah. You know. The shock of not being head of state in Barbados. Yeah. Killed her. If we're gonna give credit out, you know. <laughs> I think we would do some. Between your mum and Liz Truss. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this, this is indeed the news, that Thomas Heatherwick's Tree of Trees, created for the Jubilee just a few months before the Queen passed away, has gone down as possibly one of the worst pieces of public art ever created in the capital, up there with MVRDV's Marble Arch Mound, and the orbit and the entire canon of Damien Hirst. Um, what cue grabbed headlines for almost an entire week in September? What, so, Greg's has started doing the festive bake. <laughs> Q's a vegan, huge... Vegan sausage roll. Oh, I mean, they're all, all, all an all-year-round evergreen, but the, the festive steak bake. Oh. Never been to a Greg's. What? Uh, <laughs> for, for anyone who missed it on the record, there was an audible hush round the room, <laughs> and someone just went, what? <laughs> I've just... Um... It just doesn't. There doesn't go mean... your man of the people credentials. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> Sorry, guys. And you call yourself a socialist? <laughs> yeah. No, it wasn't. It wasn't Greg's, was it? It wasn't. It was the queue. Mm. I mean, if she died like two weeks ago, for example, and people queuing now, they'd be dying, you know, in the queue. They'd be sort of scraping frozen stiffs out of the queue, and you know. <laughs> Trying to warm them up with hair dryers, but I thought that was just the royal procession. But, so, but they actually looked after the people queue very well. They gave them blankets, they gave them water. You know, they were and there were videos of significant royal occasions you could watch whilst you were queuing for seventeen hours because it tailed back to Peckham and. That, you know, and people were outraged in a way, but couldn't say it at the time because, you know, we have homeless people and we don't look after homeless people, you know, to that extent. And all these people sort of out for one night in the queue, got a blanket and some water and, uh, you know, films of state occasions. So, yeah, I mean, it sort of puts in perspective. The best way to look after the homeless is to make sure a royal dies every six months so that we can just get a queue going. (laughs) And people will get looked after them, won't they? They get a blanket. Did any queuers die in the queue? Yes, I think some one or two did. People hospitalised, definitely. That's wild. I mean, it is, isn't it? Like, I was really worried you... about it becoming sort of recursive and as people were dying in the queue, sort of people mourning them. <laughs> and like <laughs> and like the queues, it's sort of an infinite queue of people <laughs> mourning <laughs> previous queuers, <laughs> like a snake eating itself. Oh. This is the news that the Open House Festival queues this year were extremely long. <laughs> um, but you did get to see inside Westminster Hall to, to glimpse an empty box. 
200,000 people queued sometimes overnight to uh, uh, believe that they were seeing the Queen lying in state. Her death sent shockwaves around the country, prompting displays of grief and mourning. Strangely, instead of the dutiful keep calm and carry on spirit, which defined so much of the late monarch's 72-year reign, Britain instead adopted a policy of panic and stop everything, with a wave of cultural events cancelled for the next 10 days. Queen Liz's death was actually announced during the launch party of Open House Festival, leading me to suspect that Peter Murray from the, uh, the London Architecture Festival might have topped her off in an attempt to sabotage a rival architecture event. Um, I'm happy... Allegedly, allegedly. Allegedly, allegedly. allegedly. I said... Anyway. Um, I'm, I'm happy to say that despite Peter's alleged efforts the festival continued open house festival continued but it was bad timing some buildings of course had to pull out um, of the festival due to their close connections to the palace it was a particularly moving moment for example when the southwark waste management and recycling center cancelled the educational tours that they were going to run that saturday as a mark of respect the Queen famously loved recycling, giving old, broken, out-of-date antiques another chance when no one else will touch them. Darning an old sock, mending a puncture, forking out a £12 million court settlement cost to silence sexual assault allegations against Prince Andrew. It's all the same thing, really. Also in National Morning News, which local authority cancelled its annual carnival, sending shockways across a raft of small-scale local businesses and stallholders? Oh, I was really angry about this. Yeah, Hackney Hackney cancelled their market because the Queen died. But it was the, ten days after. It's what the Queen she would died. have wanted. <laughs> she would have wanted people to be disappointed. But you don't she know. She wanted small stallholders to lose money. That's what she would have wanted. She might have been DJing or something. You don't know what the fans <laughs> were. It might have been something you know difficult to avoid. That would have been particularly good. I mean, as a celebration of Caribbean culture, there's only five territories left that are under UK sovereignty out of 34 now. We now have a new monarch, uh, King Charles III, who has some big ideas on architecture. Kath, you have an MBE. You've met the king. You famously published his 10 principles for contemporary urbanism in the Architectural Review when you were the editor. How excited are you about what the reign of Charles III means for architecture in Britain? Well, he's a meddler, so that bodes sort of badly, I think. Um, and I was quite surprised that he actually took Charles as his regnal name. Um, if you watch The Crown, you know what a regnal name is. Um, because he could have picked any of his four or five names that he's got. And I think about Charles III. First Charles was beheaded. The second Charles uh, was known as the Merry Monarch. He was a lush and a hedonist, and he fathered 12 illegitimate children, at least. And Charles III has delicious rhyming slang potential for turd. I've just done a huge Charles III. <laughs> So, um, yeah, but I've met him because uh, I went to the palace because I got an MBE and he was there on MBE gonging duty and he's very ruddy. Aristocratic people tend to be ruddy because they're out a lot, you know, hunting, shooting and fishing. Ruddy and sort of uh, manic, I think that would be the words to describe him. But, yeah, as far as architecture goes, well, he's a meddler and he dumped the Arabi in it uh, back in... Uh, 1984 with the Carbuncle speech and he then has been meddling ever since with a magazine that went bust in the 1990s and Poundbury and a school which I think is still going um, but hopefully he'll be still too busy ruling to meddle. I'm, I'm interested in what your opinions are on Poundbury because I have never really seen it before I looked at it today and what are your thoughts because to me it looks like we're a place where like the concept of ageing goes to die <laughs> <laughs> and and why is he allowed to do that? 
<laughs> well, he's he's in love with this idea. I mean, like many trads, he's you know, why can't there can't be streets? You know, why can't there be you know all these trad accounts you get on Twitter? But and everyone's going, oh, the Georgians—they were so wonderful. The Georgians were the most rapacious volume house builders ever. They just had pattern books and everything was just slung up willy-nilly. They were just you know churning the stuff out. There was no finesse. There was no th thinking about it. It was all about money and you know just building the stuff. So we're all kind of very, you know, charmed by Georgian architecture. He's particularly charmed by Georgian architecture, but it's actually a, it's a myth. It's Dr. A Ruth. <laughs> no, it's just a weird kind of stylistic facade that you have to slap on the front of things which we know need to exist in modernity. Like there's a fire station that's made to look like ye olde stables. So you can't actually kind of get things into it properly. It's, it's not what like... I want from a fire station. <laughs> well, like, you, yeah, the Poundbury Waitrose is really a thing to behold. <laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, I mean, it's, it's just a kind of game. And the funny thing for me, because I, I had this sick fascination with it as well, so I actually did this kind of weird pilgrimage down to Poundbury. And it's got a set piece at the heart of it, but because it was so rampantly popular... Um, it's actually got like the weirdest suburbs you've ever seen in your life. That are, um, and I grew up near Swindon, so, <laughs> I have so you've got an idea of what weird suburbs. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it attracted the same things that every other badly planned city ever attracts. So, victim of its own success. Okay. <laughs> Whose presidential victory foiled last-minute rule changes allegedly intended to stymie his chances? This is probably the nerdiest question of the quiz. I defer to the architect's side of the table. Well, Muiwa Oki really came, overcame some adversity that Reba managed to throw in his way. Um, they introduced like, rule changes about elections that really were to rival the Labour Party's shenanigans. Um, you had to be a member of the ROBA 10 days before the election notice was given. So there was actually a weird thing where the cutoff was the 23rd of April, but it, it was a rule that was brought in on the 28th of April. So they were having some really kind of, they were desperately trying to change the rules. It so for, right. for those who don't know this story, this is the news that uh, Muiwa Oki has been elected the youngest ever and first black president of the 188-year-old Royal Institute of British Architects. Uh, his campaign pledge was essentially to better connect the ROBA with ordinary workers. And interestingly, he's not the owner of a company, which is very unusual for the sort of candidates who put themselves forward for the ROBA presidency. So, so that's the kind of context of, of why the ROBA might be trying to change the rules to stop this guy from getting in. Uh, but they, they failed, didn't they? Thankfully, yes, they did fail because... Um the RIBA was set up to protect the figureheads of practice, but the ARB was supposed to um, sort of protect the workers. It's kind of like the workers' union, as oh. it were. So one is there to promote architecture. I don't know if you're familiar that RIBA promotes architecture, if that's yeah. a role that they fulfil. I'm nodding, which is great for a podcast. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. Yeah. but um, no, famously, an old guard, very old ways, and they finally found, it, found some way of renewing its membership and bringing some new blood in, and then they tried to stop it instantly, which I found totally perverse. Usually it's someone called Alan is elected, <laughs> RIBA president. Uh, there seemed to be a sort of co dreadful cacophony of Alans at the RIBA. Um, I think we've managed to get, they've managed to get rid of both Alans now. They so took each other out. It's Alan-free <laughs> for now. But, uh, I mean, the, the shame is that you, only something like 19% of the membership votes for the president. And it's a sort of ceremonial role but it you know you are a kind of figurehead you need to be sort of there people want to comment you know um and usually you get a boring alan and now we've got an interesting you know Maria, uh, 
Um, so I hope he, I mean, I hope he doesn't get swallowed up by the the politics and the fat and the bloatedness of the RIBA, which always reminds me of the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Monster in Ghostbusters, sort of. Finally, a reference I understand. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you now. Okay. Yeah. Keep talking. Yeah, so... Uh, I mean, yes, you're you're right. This is uh, the 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 presidential victory of Muiwa Oki, uh, the youngest and, and first black president of the the RABA. Uh, Oki's win could be good news for young architects who often say they they are underpaid and overworked. Uh, according to the RIBA Architecture Salary Guide, part two architectural assistants who have typically done two degrees and at least a year in the industry uh, are paid around £28,000, not a, a colossal amount. And I think the RIBA is exactly the right organisation to take on, uh, uh, to take a strong stand on, on higher pay. Can anyone tell me how much the RIBA spent on its own staff in 2021? Is it more or less than an energy company? <laughs> it's less than an It's um, 15 million pounds. That's an average of about 50,000 pounds per member of staff. The former CEO, Alan Valance, pay, was paid, according to the Architects Journal, over 300,000 pounds. Uh, at least now we know why RABA membership fees are so high. And um, it pays to be an Alan, clearly. Yeah. <laughs> um, I can't we... believe I left all my jokes about Alan's at home. <laughs> <laughs> I'm you livid. Don't... If you listen very carefully, you can just about hear the sound of the RIBA's new president, Miyawaki, tearing up my honorary fellowship. Um, I'm just kidding. In fact, this year is also uh, the year it was announced that Valerie Vaughan Dick will be joining the RIBA as the new CEO, replacing uh, Alan Valance, meaning that for the first time ever, the Institute will have a black president and a black chief executive, which is kind of cool. Um, okay, uh, Oki is already using his presidency to stir up debate, though. Can anyone tell me what the significance was of the outfit that he wore to the 2022 Sterling Prize ceremony at 66 Portland Place? Um, he took Eleni Kiriaku. She's a fashion designer who'd studied at the Bartlett and was the whistleblower for all of the things that have been going on there recently, a kind of big force for change, but who's also, through her fashion designing business, had applied to the ROBA to exhibit and photograph her collection in Portland Place and had been refused because of the kind of like political entanglements there. Um, so her collection was called Time to Rebuild that had a lot of symbolism about like crossed lines and shades of grey and things coming through. Um, and Muiwa Oki took her, wet, and they both for the outfits, the opening ceremony. So it's really kind of like an opening statement about like how he actually sees his presidency panning out. Now the weather section. Which London touring venue sent bits of itself on tour earlier this year? I'll give you a clue. The answer was blowing in the wind. Look, was it the Millennium Dome? It was the Millennium Dome. <sighs> Torn to shreds. Torn oh, yeah. to pieces during that massive storm. What was it called? Storm... No. Eunice? 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 Storm Eunice? Not a stone's throw from this very podcasting studio. It depends how hard the wind's blowing <laughs> and <laughs> which way it's going. I, I, it, was, you know, I mean, it was interesting to see the, see the Millennium Dome get torn to shreds. However, I was much more interested in the massive silver balls that worked their way down Oxford Street on the same day. That was one of the funnest things I've ever seen. And I understand that that's... I don't know if you all saw it. It was these, these huge inflatable silver balls... Um, got unleashed during the storm and just breezed down the street, knocking into everything on the way. And I think we should do that every year. I think it should be like London's running of the bulls. <laughs> running of the bulls? Rolling of the bulls. <laughs> it was, um, these things were huge, sort of 25 foot across, yeah. streaming down the street. It was amazing. I saw that on Instagram, but it's like, 
such a testament to the hyper reality that we live in with Instagram and like social media. Where it took me ages to figure out, like, have I, am I watching like one of those animations that you sometimes see when you're scrolling through? Like, what's real anymore? Like, what is this an event or am I just losing my mind? Or is it both? It's both normally. Um, I love the fact that the Millennium Dome is allegedly the ninth largest building in the world by usable volume. It's like, what, what does that mean? Is it? Apparently, yeah. But it's got a lot of symbolism in it because the whole design was geared around the fact that it was supposed to be like 12 masts for the 12 months of the year, 365 metres in diameter, 52 metre high canopy. So all of these things. About to... uh... And then the fact that the symbolism of it getting torn to shreds in like post-Brexit Tory Britain was just really quite beautiful. <laughs> yeah, there was a wonderful time when the millennium was a genuinely exciting project. You know, prospect and terrifying as well because you could have the Y2K bug and it would wipe your, you know, 4GB computer, you know, yeah. off the. And there was Blur. Yeah, Remember Blur? Blur? That was pretty yeah. terrifying. Like, yeah. what? The band? Yeah. Remember Brit Battle Pop? Of the band. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sure. I, just, I didn't think they were caused by the Millennium Bug. I was really confused. No, yeah, they were yeah. just around at the time. Okay, right, okay. <laughs> well, and there was also, I mean, talking of storm damage, there was also Hertha uh, de Moron's um, placky panels for La Bande Dance Centre got ripped off. Just like, you know, a giant had sort of peeled them off and spattered them everywhere. So, you know, good architecture is not obviously stormproof. Which is the second time it's happened to Herzog and Moran because it happened it? to the Tate Modern before and I don't think they've put them back yet from about two, three years ago. Is God um, trying to tell us something about Swiss architecture? Is that <laughs> what's going not on here? Not his favourite. Not his favourite. Yet Poundsbury remains untouched. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Spooky. <laughs> you know whose side he's on. <laughs> I almost said pound land. <laughs> I'd forgotten what it was Bell called. Pound land for Keeping with sort of extreme uh, weather, now that Kanye is finally cancelled, what was 2022's hottest record of the year? It was so warm. Too hot to go near with a barge pole. That's Kanye West. I, mean. <laughs> I had heat waves in Croydon, but uh, never mind. Uh, it's been another scarily crazy year for weather in London. A summer of droughts and heat waves reduced many public parks to arid yellow deserts. While in November, some parts of the city got deluged with half the typical rainfall for that month in a single night. Uh, but it's OK, because according to the papers, Rishi Sunak might unban new onshore wind farms after he banned new onshore wind farms after Liz Truss unbanned new onshore wind farms after Boris Johnson banned new onshore wind farms and that is the kind of decisive strategic long-term leadership that will get us through the fight against climate change who says we're biased um moving on <laughs> it's not bias it's just facts which london politician's landlord asked them out on a date and by asked them out i mean forced them to leave their home and by on a date i mean on a date within two months of the eviction notice they gave them you're not going to laugh at this, but Liz Truss kind of got evicted from... <laughs> I, I read this story and I was really looking forward to laughing at it. Uh, the idea of a, uh, an MP getting... Or a, a person in government getting kicked out of somewhere. It's, yeah, it's just... It's on form for this year. Um, but it is very sad. It's a very young councillor uh, getting kicked out of their apartment for... They're called Chloe Tomlinson. Um, and they're getting kicked out of their flats that they share with a few other people because their landlord is switching estate agents and that's going to cost the cost them seven and a half grand and the landlord's like well i can just kick out my tenants for no reason 
um, which is insane. And the fact that we allow landlords to treat people so poorly in this country is absolutely unacceptable. Whoa, whoa, whoa. whoa. I know it's a comedy Let's not podcast. Get anti-landlord on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> they're a protected group as well. Oh, they're generously providing a service. Yeah, I used to be very anti-landlord when I was younger because our generation are obviously all forced to rent for stupid money and live in stupid places. And we had a... I mean, a genuine hole in the floor in our bathroom for something like six that months. That was my ceiling Yeah, this was well. the same building. Yeah, your ceiling, yeah. <laughs> Worse for me, though, because I had to get out of the bath into a hole. Um, <laughs> I had to look at your foot mm, through a hole. That's true. That was when you put your microwave on, our Wi-Fi would go off. Oh, it was amazing. That was terrible. These, these aren't jokes. These are facts. That's just, yeah, stop laughing at our lives. <laughs> You're stuck in this mess as well. I don't know why you young people are here laughing. And there was the mice as well. Yeah. But I've softened my position on landlords a lot. I've realised, you know... As I've got a bit older and I've thought about it, you know, everyone has to make a living somehow. And, you know, I've obviously been given some money and I've got a property of my own now. And, you know, it's tenants are a nightmare. You know, <laughs> every day it's something else. You didn't tell me you're moving these people into the bathroom. They've set a bonfire. Do you know what I mean? So I'm doing a podcast. Can you? Um, so I think landlords are all right now. <laughs> That's why I'm voting for Keir Starmer. <laughs> Uh, this is the news that even our elected leaders are not safe from the greed of landlords. Chloe Tomlinson, who represents Rye Lane Ward in South London Borough of Southwark, was served a so-called Section 21 notice, forcing her to leave her home within two months, a practice that is actually illegal in many European countries, including uh, Germany and kind of comparable com economies to the UK. Uh, in this context, London's rents are on track to rise 15.8% this year alone, as landlords take advantage of the UK's incredibly weak regulations, which offer renters no meaningful protection from exploitation. Um, perhaps one reason landlords have such favourable regulations in this country is because there are so many of them in Parliament. If you had to guess, would you say there are more MPs who are landlords or who are from black and minority ethnic backgrounds? Do I have to guess? Anyone want to guess? <laughs> I think he wouldn't have asked us if it wasn't exactly what we suspect. You directly at me when you said black as well. <laughs> and then at me when you said minority. <laughs> and then back at me when you said landlords, which I think is <laughs> the most racist thing you could have done. Um, it's definitely going to be landlords. Though. It is indeed yeah. landlords. There are just 65 MPs who identify as minority ethnic, while there are 115 who are landlords. In fact, there are more than double as many landlord MPs as there are SNP and Liberal Democrat MPs put together. I So, well, I, I did a little bit of research on the names of MPs and I've discovered that there are only twice as many current black or ethnic minority MPs as there are MPs called John. <laughs> Isn't that wild? How many of the black MPs are landlords? <laughs> and called John. <laughs> that is representation. Exactly, representation yeah. matters. I think that's a beautiful vision for multicultural Britain. The House of Commons just packed with, you know, black people and landlords who are often the same thing. Called John. That's what I want. Yeah. As a liberal, I'm satisfied with that setup and I don't see any need to change it. Um, which long-awaited railway line finally opened four years and five months late, three billion pounds over budget, and having helped to destroy an entire swathe of central London's music culture. I'm not sure you're going to take this as the right answer, but I'm going to say Crossrail. Whoa! Because <laughs> <laughs> I absolutely refuse to call it the Elizabeth Line. Right, very so, old school. Rightly so. It's got some great names that people have come up for it other than the Elizabeth Line, though. Go on. Like uh, Lizzie Line, obviously, Lizard Line. 
Is that the David, the David Icke fans? Is that because Queen Elizabeth is famously a lizard? Yeah. Right, I see. Uh, Purple Train. To be oh, sung in the tune of Prince. Purple Train. Oh, amazing. I'm into that. Because um, there is a history of having a portmanteau of uh, train line names about the connect- places they connect. Like Bakerloo Line. Bakerloo, um, uh. Baker Street and Waterloo. Um, the portmanteau for that should be the Padding Pool. <laughs> or the Mary White House line because Maryland Whitechapel and Mansion House oh. that's good wordplay <laughs> that's very that's Matt good Brown at London. Oh, okay. you can't argue with that can you this is of course Crossrail which opened to much fanfare this year costing 25 billion dollars taking 13 years to build 25 billion you know that's a lot of money but remember the 200 billion that the energy companies are going to make over the next two years if we tax those energy companies even at the basic rate we could pretty much build crossrail every single year and have enough left over to heat those swimming pools so you keep you keep listing things in dollars who are you being sponsored Bloomberg who's paying you yeah we're starting to uncover the are we just appealing to an international audience also I'm going to disagree with you on this taxing energy companies things because you know where does it stop one minute you're doing that the next you're doing landlords you know and I I would rather just leave things as they are <laughs> Boris started on Have I Got News For You and Pete starts here <laughs> and <laughs> it made out. him a monster <laughs> look out everybody what central London retail phenomena sparked a wave of moral panic and conspiracy theories resulting in a mini inquiry and a series of police raids Oh, the candy shops. The sweet shops. But I mean, American chocolate, if anyone's tasted it, is an abomination. <laughs> so I don't. You put such heavy vocal air quotes on that. Yeah, chocolate. I mean. American <laughs> chocolate. Chocolate. <laughs> Um, so I don't, you know, who's buying the stuff? Well, that's it. No one's buying it. There are, there are, that's... I'm, I'll, I'll give a bit more context. This is probably the weirdest story of the year. Um, news broke of an investigation into why there are 15 sweet shops within a three-mile radius seemingly renting some of the most expensive commercial space in the world despite only selling sweets and having no price tags on many of their items. Um, so this builds on a 2019 investigation from the private eye, which alleged that a hundred of London's West End um, souvenir shops were actually part of an elaborate tax dodge. And some of these 100 were then apparently converted to sweet shops during the lockdown because souvenir shops were hit by the lockdown and had to close. Sweet shops were technically grocery providers and therefore could stay open because um, they were essential. So, you know, tax dodging street shop, uh, sweet shops on Oxford Street are essential grocery stores. Next, they'll be telling us that garden parties are work meetings. <laughs> Imagine that. In other sort of um, central London news, in demolition news, can anyone tell me which Seldorf is accused of being a sell-out? Well, this is Annabelle, Annabelle Seldorf, um, who also gave a name to a horrific doll. Um, uh, She's an American architect who is remodelling the uh, National Gallery, Sainsbury Wing, Sainsbury Wing, to the... And Denise Scott Brown, the original architect, has been shrieking in horror about what she's doing. And everybody's been objecting. And basically she's transforming this space, which was very atmospheric and gloomy, and deliberately so, because the idea is that you went up the staircase and out of the gloom and you came into the light and the galleries really looked, the paintings, the Renaissance paintings, looked shining in this light. People actually did say, have the paintings been cleaned? When they sort of got to the galleries, but they hadn't. Their eye was 
playing tricks on you because you've been in the gloom and then you're going up to the light. Anyway, so Seldorf wants to make it look like a sort of airport lounge, basically, and beigeify it. And uh, everyone's up in arms. But it looks like it's going to go through because all the kind of opposition has wilted and, you know, she's changed bits of it. And it's a bit sad because the it wasn't designed, it's going to be the main entrance to the National Gallery and it wasn't designed as that. Yeah. The problems with the main building, really, isn't it? The it's problems, got that yeah. wonderful set piece that you go towards and then it's like, on the left. Yeah, where'd you, get, where'd you get in? But it, I mean, it's a terrible, the original building's a terrible building. I mean, Thackeray described it as a gin shop. Um, Sounds great. <laughs> I'd definitely go more. <laughs> but um, Seldorf and uh, Venturi Scott Brown have got uh, eight years of beef on this though, haven't they? Um, Venturi Scott Brown designed a gallery in San Diego in 1996 and in 2014, Annabelle Seldorf came in and similarly uh, removed all the facades. Yeah. Um, and there was a kind of outcry over in uh, San Diego at the time as well. But the interesting thing is that the Heritage Society from the area actually moved in and took these fabulous like fiberglass sort of chunky columns that were so iconic of that facade and moved them like 300 foot over the road and just kind of like had them lurking in the background. So I think actually what we need to do is have a word with the High Commission of Canada or the Serious Fraud Office and see if they want a new POMO facade. So you just sort of peel peel off the Venturi Scott Brown stuff and stick it on a building nearby. It'd be perfect for Pomo, definitely. That is very Pomo. Um, this is, of course, the news that Britain's demolition addiction continues. Uh, while M&S are trying to knock down their own central London flagship store, uh, Westminster Council are approving huge changes to its Grade One listed 1991 Sainsbury's wing. Um, you know, this does rather throw into question what the point is of a grade one listing if you can make changes this radical. Yeah, uh, I didn't want to out my sort of architectural ignorance, but like, that doesn't sound right. Yeah. Right? <laughs> like, yeah. isn't that kind of the, the whole... The whole point, the I whole thought, point of well. that. Also, what's POMO? Yeah. <laughs> it's like you really fear of missing out. Oh, right. <laughs> Properly. Like, yeah. Pissed off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Pissed off missing out. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, eight, eight, eight former presidents of the RIBA uh, have said this all is... All called Alan. All of them <laughs> Alan. All the Al's. We got together. <laughs> They've all called it ill-judged, uh, fearing that it will, it will set a bad precedent. And, you know, uh, but I, for one, am optimistic. I look forward to next year when ABBA are tipped to replace the Dome of St. Paul's Cathedral with a bespoke concert venue to host their new show titled appropriately Money, Money, Money. <laughs> Sorry, is that real or not? <laughs> <laughs> that is the end of the show. Um, the final scores are neck and neck. Kath and Ruth on team backbenchers have 10 points. Yay! But in a remarkable coincidence... In a remarkable coincidence, uh, Peter and Sonny on Team Infinite Darkness have 10 points as well. Okay. Can I just say, <laughs> may have been rigged, but we have a mandate now. So <laughs> uh, you, you therefore share a prize, which is a torn up copy of my fellowship of the RIBA. Um, a big hand to both teams. You tried, you two. You really tried. Thank you, everybody, um, for joining us. If you enjoy the show, please remember that, like the vast majority of Open Cities programmes, including our education work supporting young people from underrepresented communities and the Open House Festival, it's all only possible thanks to the support of those of you who donate £5 a month or more 
to the charity. If you are one of our donors listening to this or here in the room, um, thank you. A huge Merry Christmas to you. If you're not, um, <laughs> go to opencity.org.uk slash friends and sign up and you too can get a Merry Christmas from me. Every... <laughs> Every penny you donate is used to support our year-round educational programmes and events, which make a massive difference to a lot of people's lives. Um, thank you again. Thank you to both our teams. Thank you for listening. Merry Christmas and good night. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.